0: It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. Interview today with Peter Cooper. I want to remind you that there's a new peep code screencast on prototype JavaScript. Gotten a lot of great reviews already. I will be at RailsConf in Portland, May 17 20, and also Ruby on Rails, Amsterdam, Netherlands, June 7th, and Ostrová on Rails, Czech Republic, June 22 and 23. If you see me there, ask me for a Peep Code t-shirt, and I'll give you one for free, limited to supply on hand. So it's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach, talking with someone that many of you already know, Peter Cooper, started Feed Digest, also big bold cold snippets and ruby inside blog among other things talking to us from Louth the UK did i say that right
1: yeah you did a good job <laughs>
0: i can there are like 20 peter cooper's in skype in the uk but i was able to find you you're the only one in louth
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. I've sort of made a little bit of a a habit of um, sort of getting in touch with uh, each of them, although they seem to get in touch with me first. So uh, Uh most of us know each other. Well, not all of them, but uh, yeah, quite a few.
0: I knew a guy, at least in the US, James Smith is a common name, and there's like a whole convention of people named James Smith.
1: Yeah, there was a guy trying to get all of the the 4,000 Peters to meet up in London as well, but uh, I don't think it ever happened.
0: Well, most people know you. From reading your blog, Ruby Inside, and if they were to ask who's the most famous Peter Cooper, they would mention you. Where did you start that? It's been quite popular. A lot of people visit it daily.
1: Yeah, it's kind of an unintentional serendipity, really, the whole thing. I sort of started it because an editor from A-Press approached me back in, oh, it was April last year, April 2006, about writing the Ruby book, which uh, we'll probably be talking about later. But they approached me about that, so I started to you know, work on that, and I thought, well, a good way of promoting the book will be with a blog. You know, If, if I get a number of subscribers, then you know, hopefully I can count on a number of those buying the book, and uh, it, will do, it will do well. So I sort of began Ruby Inside with that in mind. Um, I was going to link to stuff that, you know, news about Rails, basically. Not news about Rails, news about Ruby and Rails. Um, and sort of hope that a lot of newcomers to the language would uh, approach it because there were a few blogs around like Red Handed and the O'Reilly Ruby blog. But I wanted something that was perhaps more, you know, less, less kitsch and kind of... Just very matter-of-fact. I mean, some might call it boring, but uh, just, just news, basically. So, but then it ended up that you know, all of the people that do Ruby and Rails already, who perhaps don't even need to read the book, ended up subscribing to it, and uh, it's just progressed the last year to where we are today.
0: That's fascinating. So you started the blog, hoping that it would become popular so that you could then use it to promote the book. That's uh, quite a lot of thinking ahead.
1: Yeah. I mean, sort of when I started the book, you know, I could see the future and uh, I kind of muse about the future a bit. And I thought, well, you know, what's going to happen when I release this book and no one buys it? I was, you know, kind of thinking from the start, how am I going to sell this book? And it sort of seemed a natural way. You don't
0: write a lot of original articles on there. Usually it's a link and a photo of some other interesting article that's been done. I think that's a great idea because some other people sprinkle links in and definitely we have a lot of tumble logs, but nobody else was really doing that kind of thing specifically.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it almost is like a TumbleLog in some ways. You know, it doesn't have the TumbleLog format as such, but a lot of it is, as you say, just a picture and some text. You know, when you've got pictures on a blog, and I mean, the reason I have the pictures on most of the posts is because I sort of saw a few blogs that were like that um, in totally different areas sort of before I got going. And I thought, you know, when you see these pictures, you don't look at it because of the pictures, but they just keep you flowing through, you know, it's something interesting to see. I think, you know, we are visual animals at the end of the day. So I sort of picked that up and it it seems to have worked.
0: I think that's a great idea. Whenever I write a blog article, I try to throw some kind of screenshot or picture in there, especially if you're reading through some of these aggregators, you know, text, text, headline, text. Oh, there's a picture. I'll click on it.
1: Yeah. Um, Actually, none of the pictures on uh, Ruby inside are clickable, actually. That's something I should uh, think about for the future.
0: I think you should. Anytime I've used done any kind of usability testing, it's like one of the first thing, people just try to click on a a big picture.
1: Yeah, perhaps I'll, perhaps I'll do that from now on.
0: Even though you've gotten a number of viewers, you don't have any Google ads, you haven't even tried to sell any kind of ads on there, almost like a public service, or as you said, advertising your own book uh, eventually when it came out. Do, now that the book is out, do you have any plans to try to capitalize on that or are you going to keep it ad free
1: well i mean one of the problems especially in the, the ruby area and a lot of people think this is a good thing that there's no specific vendor that's you know got a large interest in this area they haven't got you know a thousand dollar toolkit to sell you know then there's no sun or microsoft kind of directly in this area even though they are kind of helping in, uh, on the sidelines it kind of limits the commercial, you know, sort of interest in advertising. I mean, there are a few bits and pieces. There's, like, Rails hosting companies, small things like that. But, you know, there's no one that's going to spend, you know, whatever, $20 CPM or whatever, as is, you know, common in sort of, you know, with Java sites and so on. So I kind of see it at this point as being sort of my contribution back to the the community because I don't release an awful amount of code. I tend to keep my code quite proprietary, So I sort of see that as my contribution back, you know, even if I'm not sort of doing much open source stuff. I appreciate, too, the
0: frequency of posts. You're not posting there, well, it's rarely even more than once a day. It's manageable. A lot of these other tumble blogs are great, but when you just have that much information, it's almost overkill.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's been something I've sort of kept a lid on. Um, I mean, sometimes it can slack for a couple of days but then a lot of news will come in or there'll be a lot of things to announce. And then I'll use the WordPress feature where you can post into the future to appear, you know, the next day or the day after. The reason for that is because I've read blogs where someone just wants to post every 10 minutes and, you know, you end up subscribing from it because it's just a nightmare. So uh, I've always sort of been careful to spread them out.
0: Well, Ruby Inside hasn't been your only success. You recently sold the Big Bold Snippets site that you wrote with code snippets. Tell us about that you started that almost just as a project to learn rails right
1: Yeah I mean I sort of began playing with rails in November 2004 I did you know some some tiny amounts of stuff with it but I sort of had other work going on so I sort of didn't jump into it full time So in March 2005 uh, I kind of had this need I had all these different you know snippets of code that I wanted to access and I was in love with delicious at the time in fact still am uh, and I wanted something similar where I could, instead of putting links in, I would put actual code in, and then I could tag the code with, you know, various tags like Perl or C or, you know, RSS and so on, and then pull it out at whim. Uh, and it, it was actually Sam Stevenson who he created a system that was similar. It wasn't for code, as far as I recall. And I can't remember the name of it, but he had he never released the code, but it was a um, a very simple content tagging system and i saw that and i thought yeah that's actually kind of cool i mean it doesn't sort of do the stuff that i want it to do but you know, I could sort of develop something that uses the same kind of concept, which I did. It was basically a, a 24-hour project, really. It was one of these, you know, I'm I'm tanked up on Red Bull and I'm going to stay up all night long and get this done kind of thing. So um, that's where the first sort of iteration of Snippets came from. And it was literally just for me to start with. The growth was very, you know, very, very shallow curve, basically. But then it just did build up over time. It's one of these viral things. And especially once I did a... Um, you know, holding my fingers up to do quotes now, but a Web two design onto it. You know, it really started to ramp up quick. Yeah,
0: early on. I mean, I remember that was the one of the first resources when I was learning Rails. I would just search for things in Google, and inevitably, big bold snippets would show up in a couple of the results. And so I ended up seeing a few things there and contributing. But at the first, I think it was just black and blue, and then you added some uh, pastel colors afterwards.
1: Yeah. I mean, actually, the way you found it via Google would have been the way that, you know, almost everyone found it, except in the latter days when I started linking to actual posts from Ruby inside places like that, because just for some reason, it just did really well on Google. Uh, I mean, the page rank wasn't even that great, but Google just seemed to kind of respect that whole tagged hierarchy, and there was obviously sort of a pattern of links in there that made it sort of catch on quick. Uh, so literally, you know, at the end, sort of when I sold it, you know, there were tens of thousands of people each day just coming in, you know, searching for completely random things. I mean, you know, there were some some great things in there, JavaScript trim, and you know, in, in any of these kind of searches, it would come up.
0: I found that even searching for like specific error messages. Sometimes when I have a problem, I'll search for that exact error message, and usually a variety of sites come up. That would almost be another. Maybe that'll be your next idea. I'll just throw that up for free is, you know, specific error messages, you know, nil error online this. And sometimes that actually shows up often enough that it's useful when somebody has a solution.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people do that, actually. I've I've definitely done that on my personal blog where, you know, I've uh, had an error message installing some gem or some library or whatever, and I've sort of copy and pasted the the error message in and then, you know, actually sort of presented the solution if I have one. So, uh, yeah, people come through that way as well. Now, you ended up selling that. Somebody else approached you and
0: you shopped it around a bit. How did that happen?
1: I, had a, I have a friend who sort of owns um, a web hosting company and he was interested. He's always been interested in it, you know, sort of asking me about my projects and so on. Eventually, got to a point and he's sort of saying, you know, are you interested in selling it? And, you know, it was making a certain amount of money each month. It wasn't, wasn't too far off about $1,000 a month it was making. Just off its own back, I wasn't doing anything. It was just from, from AdSense. Um, and on the amount of traffic, even that, that was quite a low CPM. And he's like, you know, I think I can cut and do something with this to sort of promote my own business and so on. So I said, well, you know, what would you want to pay for it? And he sort of gave me a figure. And uh, I said, yeah, that's a pretty go- good offer, actually. But I sort of went away, and you know, people have told me over the years, you know, never settle for the first offer. Always sort of see if you can find anything better. So I got in touch with a few people who I thought might be interested. Sort of thinking, you know, nothing's going to happen. And then Rick Gross from DZone, uh, as I like to call it, the, the Dig for Developers, um, which has uh, become a lot more popular with Ruby developers lately. He sort of says, you know, I'll oh, offer you X for it. You know, as long as we just sort of do the deal now, it's, you know, it's done immediately. Um, And literally, you know, within a week, the whole thing was done and cleared up. Uh, You know, it, it just went great from start to end. And, you know, they're enjoying the traffic off the back of it. And because of the advertisers they got, they can monetize it a lot better than I could. So everyone wins as far as I see it.
0: That's great. So you were all, I mean, you, you were getting a little of income from it anyway, but it was almost an incubator and then somebody else can put the marketing or tie it into the rest of their site.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just didn't have the, the network, you know, sort of the, the advertising sort of sales team, as it were, to, to handle that. But uh, he has uh, and now he's got the traffic for it. Now, another one of your businesses, there are many,
0: <laughs> is... Uh, uh, feed digest started out as rss digest and uh, i think i saw it one time what you're getting a couple million hits to that per month kind a few people are using that
1: yeah i mean the whole thing kicked off in sort of mid 2004 where i wanted to take my delicious and everything seems to relate to delicious in some way with me for some reason but i wanted to take my delicious links and put them in a little section at the top of my blog so other people could see what I was bookmarking. It all started from there because, you know, Delicious lets you output stuff as RSS. So processing RSS, uh, you know, works great. But then as it went over time, I used it and then I thought, well, let's let other people use it. It grew, it grew. You know, it was only doing sort of 100,000 requests a month sort of in the first couple of months. I had to keep building it to be 10 times better than it was. So sort of after that, I thought, hang on, I better build a new version that can do a million Uh, hits a month, and then 10 million, and so on and so forth. I mean, the system that's in place now can handle, you know, a billion per month. It's already about 250 million a month Digests that are actually being served. So, you know, it's only a quarter of capacity, and luckily it's at a point where there's almost like a shared nothing kind of architecture to it now. So I could take that one billion requests that it can do, and then buy more servers and just literally... You know, spread out the load now. So I'm not too worried about the traffic now, because you know, if it gets any more than beyond one billion um, requests, then hopefully I'll uh, have more uh, business-oriented things on my mind.
0: And the majority of those aren't even web requests; they're just requests for the actual feed as a JavaScript snippet or or uh, actual XML or whatever.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's that's why the requests are so high because. You know, we have uh, sort of several big clients that use this on their site, like the Denver Post, for example. They, they I think they're sort of the third or fourth largest newspaper in the U.S., uh, independent newspaper at least. You know, so as you can imagine, their site, you know, gets several million requests a month at least uh, straight out the barrel. So, yeah, it's not like we're serving up 250 million page views, because if we did, then I would uh, certainly be a lot wealthier than I am now. <laughs>
0: Now, there's a free version of that. You can have a aggregate of feed with a, a half dozen different sites or something like that. And then there's a paid version. Is you still going to have to ramp that quite a bit for that to be profitable or is it supporting itself?
1: Oh, no, it's definitely supporting itself. It's just that sort of beyond me, it can't, support many other people. It's at that kind of level where it needs to focus more on getting the bigger clients who have specialist needs and are willing to pay a lot more money rather than focusing on, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 sort of smaller customers who only just pay enough to keep the thing going. So that's sort of where things are going now um, even to the point of open sourcing a a sort of a lighter version of it that other people can then take and run themselves The, the typical sort of open source model of where if you have a company that wants to do site complex you know we already have a few customers like that where they can then pay us you know a lot more money and we focus on that kind of area rather than you know the mass market stuff which it works but you have to you know be really on the ball with it whereas if you've got a few larger enterprise clients it's a lot easier to manage now, of course, when anyone thinks of
0: feeds, you know, a lot of people are going to think of feed burner. Is it surprising to you that a company like that hasn't tried to do the same thing, or is it just that there's room for many competitors in the same area?
1: I mean, there are a few competitors. I mean, one of the first ones that was. Actually, it was just sort of coming into fruition as um, RSS Digest was beginning. Was called Feedroll, but they kind of charged a lot of money. Um, they were they had sort of bits of downtime here and there, and I mean, quite a few people did migrate from them to us. So you know, there are a few competitors, but Feed Digest has definitely become the biggest because of you know it had free accounts, and you know the the pricing structure was you know it's good value for money and so on. But companies like Feedburner you know they really are in a completely different sort of league feedburners kind of free service that they offer really is as far as i'm concerned it's literally just for mind and goodwill they make a lot of money off of their enterprise stuff which they keep quite well hidden down the back of their site you have to sort of click around and Sort of find out what their enterprise services are, but they, you know, I've had friends in companies that I I know have gone to them for quotes for services, and you know the prices are, are kind of astronomicals. So I don't think they're going to worry too much about sort of competing for the, the small fry uh, where we are at the moment. Um, but again, it's Feedburner is an influence uh, in this area, and that's kind of what's influencing my sort of thinking for the future about you know moving on to more of an enterprise level.
0: Now, for a couple of months, I've been thinking, wow, it'd it'd be great if there's some service where you could actually plug your own ad into your RSS feed, or I suppose, sell other ads, you know, make it a either a WordPress plugin or a Mephisto plugin, or even pipe it through a completely separate service. And I I just looked recently and FeedBurner is eventually going to offer something like that. Do you have any plans for that with Feed Digest, Or is it going to stay funded by the people who are using it rather than advertising?
1: I consider it advertising, but again, it takes quite a few, you know, you need quite a few people sort of on staff to, to handle all that kind of stuff. And again, you also need the contacts, there's a lot of networking to do. So it's, it's definitely not a technological problem. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's very much a sort of a cultural person problem. Uh, when you get selling advertising, um, and especially you know people are going to complain if if we kind of force that on free users without sort of going through a process or even sort of launching a new brand to do that but I mean, what you actually said about putting ads in your your feed obviously you know Feedburner do have the the feed the the ads that they can put in um, but if you wanted to put your own ads in, I think the company textlink ads who you might be familiar with. They offer a WordPress plugin you know you, you can use, and then you can they they will sell adverts for you, but you can also put your own adverts into your own feed You, you can actually even turn it off so they can 't sell when you do your own, so it might be worth looking at them
0: okay, so somebody 's thought of that already yeah well technically i 'm sure a lot of people listening to this have been frothing at the mouth when they heard that you 're doing two billion. Requests per month. Do you have any kind of tips? Are you using Rails for part of that, or using file-based caching? What kind of things did you have to do to make that work?
1: All right, uh, just to correct, it's two hundred and fifty million. Okay, so a little bit smaller, but um, but capable. But yeah, I mean, actually, one of one of sort of the, the sad things that I should admit uh, is that because of the age of you know, RSS Digest and Feed Digest. Most of the back-end technology is in Perl, which I know you'll sympathise with. What's been happening sort of over the course of that time is that stuff has been migrating to uh, Ruby. And I mean, the front-end has always been Ruby on Rails because everything goes through a database, so Rails is the perfect thing for the front-end. The back-end that actually serves the Digest and does you know, the millions of requests per month still runs on Perl. But in the last couple of months, I've actually moved the entire sort of feed-crawling system, the... You know, the system that reads in the feeds and then puts the sort of data into the database. That has moved entirely over to Ruby now. The funny thing about that is actually the Ruby feed crawler is about 20 times faster than the Perl one. And a lot of people, yeah, they'll be kind of scratching your head uh, thinking about how that happened. And I don't know whether it's because I'm a good Ruby developer or just a very bad Perl developer. <laughs> I think, actually, it has a lot to do with how the XML is being parsed. Um, sort of going into Ruby Geek here. I mean, the Perl system worked with a, an expat library, which actually should be fast. But the way I was processing it, it wasn't. But now the Ruby parser uses, why the lucky stiffs, H-Pracot, um, however you pronounce that. I think I always call it h It uses that mainly because a lot of feeds out there are invalid. You know, bad XML, this, that, and the other. And using the expat library just becomes a nightmare when you're dealing with invalid XML, it will complain all the time and so on. Whereas if you're using HPricot, which isn't really meant for passing XML, but it you know it will deal with the structure, you can sort of pass in an extremely liberal way. Hats off to to why the lucky stiff for that one. It's uh, sort of improved the passing speed no end. Uh, but just to sort of finish off your your last question about you know what the caching's like. It is coming from Perl, but it's using Memcached, uh, which, you know, most Rails people will be familiar with now. And there is some file caching as sort of a backup to that. So, you know, if the Memcached server dies for whatever reason, um, and it hasn't in two years, but if it dies, then, you know, it will fall over to file caching on the fly and things like that. So it's, it's very basic caching kind of stuff, you know, trying to hit the database as little as possible, all that kind of thing. So uh, nothing too uh, out of the ordinary.
0: So in two years, the Memcache server has never, I'm sure you've had to restart it at times, but then it has never died on its own.
1: I think the longest uptime on it was something like 369 days or something. I think that was the longest uptime for the whole thing without a restart. I think that was for the MySQL server as well, somewhere in that area. I sort of focused more on securing the machines rather than upgrading the software all the time. Although that, that does happen in fits and bursts.
0: Impressive. I'm surprised nobody has written a book on a lot of that. Of course, once you start to use it, it's not that difficult. But, you know, Memcached, Mogul FS, some of those other things that they developed at LiveJournal, there aren't many books out there telling you how to use that.
1: No, that's true, actually. And even the documentation, you know, the documentation is very basic. I think Brad Fitzpatrick is a little bit like me. If he develop something, he either develops it for his own use or uh, he kind of, you know, there's not, not too much documentation there. It's kind of, you know, you've got to figure out a little bit for yourself. So, no, there's not, there's not any books on that. And, I mean, even the whole deployment situation, you know, knowing how to, you know, hook things up like Mongrel and, you know, Rails and Memcache and sort of administering a, you know, a, a Unix server of some description – uh, you sort of have to pick bits and pieces up from all over the place or, you know, sort of blog articles have been an excellent source for that. But there is no sort of great book that sort of helps you with the whole Unix web applications or Web point, web 2.0 deployment you know issue at any level, really, that I know of.
0: Well, speaking of books, you wrote your book Beginning Ruby for A-Press just came out only a couple of weeks ago. Now, I would say, to start with, when I saw that, I was like, well, you know, a lot of people are going to re- recommend the Pickaxe book that's been out for a couple of years. And I first learned Ruby from the Poignant Guide, boys Poignant Guide to Ruby, who wrote the intro for you, the foreword. But uh, why did you feel like there was a need for another book on learning Ruby?
1: I kind of used my own experience as sort of the basis of it. I mean, you know, the whole idea for the book uh, came from sort of the publisher initially, you know, this could sound a little bit like trying to make up a reason for r- writing a book uh, after the deed is done. But, you know, there was definitely a lot of my own experience in there. I mean, my experience was that I got into Rails before I got into Ruby, which I think a lot of people share. And I kind of thought, you know, I'm a Perl developer. I don't really want to learn a lot of the language. I'm happy with Perl. I've been doing it eight years or whatever it was at the time. I don't want to, you know, don't want to move. So I did buy, you know, the books like The Pickaxe um, and I saw The Poignant Guide. I mean, I read The Poignant Guide and I could sense the the great skill and the great humour in it, but I sort of didn't connect to it at an academic level. You know, you have to definitely be more of a creative mindset straight off the bat to get into that. So while I enjoyed it and looked at the drawings and sort of, you know, Thought why I was uh, quite a stand up guy. I sort of didn't connect to it for learning Ruby. I didn't, you know, it just didn't appeal to me. So I thought, well, I'll buy the pickaxe. It sounds like the more sort of technical option. You know, I just wanted the, the plain facts, just plainly put. So I bought the pickaxe, and it's a good book. I mean, it helped me a lot, especially in its sort of the reference side of things. But in the actual kind of tuition, the instructional side of things, it tended to assume quite a lot that you sort of were you know, very familiar with dynamic languages and object orientation and so on. And I mean, obviously, coming from Perl, uh, where object orientation is just an absolute mess, apologies to Larry Wall, but, you know, it's just such a mess that some of the concepts... You know, they've either got different names, or you've you've never bothered to use them because they look completely arcane. So I, I think the pickaxe did assume quite a bit of uh, knowledge before you know coming into things. But then Chris Pine's book, uh, Learn How to Program which is also a great Ruby book, perhaps starts, you know, perhaps a too lower level. So I kind of wanted something that is the sort of book that I read, you know, when I was younger, sort of in the eighties, I sort of read these books, you know, like learn basic and so on. And they had a, a sort of a way they went through things, you know, that you do this, this is a variable, look what happens when you add these variables together, look what happens when you do print A plus B, that kind of thing. I sort of wanted to take that approach and sort of perhaps take the eighties the programming book sort of standard and bring it, you know, to sort of the, the Ruby side of things. So I kind of hope that's where it struck and sort of hope that it will become a book that someone who is perhaps, say, a C developer or, you know, someone who's perhaps been playing with Excel macros or something, you know, they have a kind of an idea of what programming is. You know, they can install programs and, you know, they're happy with using the command line, perhaps, but they don't know how to actually develop programs with Ruby, then it's for those guys.
0: Well, I was impressed. I thought you did a good job, and even though it goes through a lot of detail, it's still possible to read it quickly. I mean, it's, there's a lot of content—six hundred pages or so. But I sat through the last couple nights and you know read the, through a hundred pages or something like that. Definitely covers at a nice pace for someone who's trying to get up to speed with Ruby, but already knows a little bit of programming.
1: One of the things about the book is. That like a lot of the eighties the, programming books that I read when I was younger, it does make some assumptions and there's certainly certainly some style in there that perhaps isn't unique to me as such, but there's sort of one or two ways of doing things, whereas in Ruby there perhaps are you know, sort of ten or twenty ways of doing things. I've chosen to focus in on a certain way of moving through. I mean the reason for that is A, because of the amount of space, but B because the main goal of the book is that someone can read it, they know how to develop Ruby applications but then they're just given enough and told, you know, this, there's a few more ways of doing it, that they then become interested in actually signing up to the, you know, the Ruby mailing list and actually getting on the IRC channels and actually, you know, posting stuff to their blogs and so on and actually become a part of the community and actually go out and look for stuff sort of in the way that I did as I learned, you know, Ruby. Well, to me, the real
0: accomplishment of that book was getting Why the Lucky Stiff to do an illustrated introduction three or four pages how in the world did you arrange that
1: yeah i mean that's been kind of interesting i mean he's an interesting guy to get hold of sometimes you don't get back from him and sometimes you get back from him straight away so uh, definitely an interesting guy and I mean, I and you know, definitely all the people at A-Press as well totally appreciate the job he's done. I mean, it's just it's just come out great. And I mean, the first time I read it, sort of, I was laughing already. You know, it just looks so good. And I sort of really like the spin he's put on it about, you know, the, the stuff about chopping up animals and putting them back together. It's uh, only why that could look at it that way. And I mean, you know, I mean, literally, he was my first choice for, you know, the person to do the forward. I mean... People will think, yeah, let's get Matt's to do it or whatever. You know, no disrespect to Matt's, but sort of I wanted something that perhaps sort of softened, you know, softened the blow for the start of the book so that it was something a little bit kind of jovial that people could look at before sort of diving into some more serious stuff. So I thought, you know, why is the perfect person for this? And I thought, you know, there's no way he's going to agree to this. But it was literally, you know, an email and he came back. And he said, yeah, I, you know, I'd love to do it. So there was no stress to it at all.
0: Well, it's great just to kind of be a little documentation of history like that. I think maybe that's the only second time that he's been in print, at least in the mainstream press. One of the chapters of The Poignant Guide was in one of Joel Spolsky's anthologies, but now your book is going to show up in libraries and schools across country and has a little bit of Wide Lucky Stuff stiff illustration in it.
1: Oh, definitely. I I definitely want his genius to spread because, I mean, you know, even though I didn't sort of connect immediately with The Poignant Guide, and I mean, I love it now. It's stuff like that that, you know, other languages don't have. I mean, you know, there's no kind of equivalent for Python, you know, to actually capture those sort of creative people who perhaps wouldn't have come to Ruby or Rails without sort of that sense of fun in the community. Well, this
0: chat has gone quickly. I'm sure there's a lot else that we could talk about. Thanks to your publisher, I'm going to run a little contest for somebody who wants to win a copy of Peter's book, Beginning Ruby. I won't go give too many details, but the uh, trick is going to be if you can come up with a Google search that returns the text of the book, Oliver Twist, as the first result, but you cannot use the words Oliver, Charles, or Dickens. So if you can figure that out, send that to boss at topfunky.com with Peter Cooper in the subject and first three people. A-Press will be sending you a copy of Peter's book. For the rest of you, you can go to your favorite online store or bookstore and get a copy. Well, thanks, Peter. Are we going to see you at any uh, events coming up or are you going to be hanging out in Louth? We have to go there to see you.
1: Yeah, I mean, people are always welcome here, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there aren't actually, I haven't got many events coming up, but uh, there are some very interesting sort of news announcements uh, that people should look out for on Ruby Inside in the next few weeks. You want to give us any hints, or we'll just have to stay tuned? No, afraid not. You'll have to stay tuned.
0: No hints. Well, thanks a lot. It's been great to chat with you, and we'll keep up with you at uh, rubyinside.com and petercooper.co.uk.